growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. There are indicators that we can begin to look at that certainly could imply that we may be moving rapidly towards that time on this earth, ladies and gentlemen. The end. We see that phrase at the conclusion of almost every movie we watch. We expect to see it. If a movie is really bad, we can't wait to see it. But what about the end of this world? Are we expecting that end? Are we in the last days? In a sense, yes. But is it going to be in five months? Or five? I don't know. But this is what I know. You and I are called to live ready. That's the point. To live ready. Get ready, yeah. Be ready, yes. Live ready. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today we're looking at the last part of chapter 11 in our study of the book of Daniel. We've only got one more chapter to go before we get to the end of the book and our series entitled Unshakable Faith, Unbreakable Promise. And today in chapter 11, we're getting a front row seat to see God's plan for the end. If you're at a place where you can, we invite you to open your Bible and follow along with us as Pastor Clay unwraps this important prophecy. Thanks for joining us. Last week, I read uh, Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 35. But if you were here, you may remember that we only got to verse 20. And to the first of what I'm, what, the way I've dried it up into three sections, that this prophecy in Daniel 11, that is complex, that is detailed, that is uh, controversial, or in, in that it's debated, uh, some of the subject matter, which we'll look at uh, today, is debated about exactly what it means or who it was or when it was and, and that sort of thing. But we got last week to just the first of the three sections of prophecy. You guys remember that? Thank you. Those three sections, we looked at the first one. And the first section was this. We looked at it last week. And this filled in on your outline if you happen to like to take notes. The time, uh, the first section is from verses 2 to 20. And it deals with the time of Daniel, the end, really the end of Daniel's life, uh, until the time of Antiochus Epiphanes who we talked about last week, I think some, we'll talk more about him this week. We have talked about him uh, in chapter 8 as well, or chapter 7. But it's the time from, from Daniel, the end of Daniel's life, to Antiochus Epiphanes. That's verses 5 through 20 of chapter 11. That first section had three parts. Y'all remember that? Three parts. They were prophecies concerning the Persian Empire after Cyrus... Uh, the kings of the Persian Empire, really, prophecies concerning the kings of the Greek Empire in verses 3 and 4, and prophecies concerning the kings of the north and the south in verses 5 through 20. So that was the three parts of that first section. Okay? Good? With me? Let's see if I can keep you in that place. Let's, uh, let's start reading this morning in verse 21, and we'll read first through verse 35, I think it is. Daniel 11, beginning in verse 21. And, and I know if, you're, if, you're, if you weren't here last week, we're jumping right into the middle of this, but hopefully we'll be able to bring uh, at least some clarity. Uh, in his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. And also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and 
gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest part of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with, his, with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. And so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days." Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure. Until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Father God, uh, as we break here in, in the passage for a moment, I'm just uh, continuing to ask for your anointing upon my lips, upon my words, I uh, honestly, humbly just say to you, I'm grateful to be your messenger boy, uh, but this is a difficult message uh, to deliver, Father God, uh, because it, it, there's a lot going on. It's, it's prophetic. Some of it has happened already. Some of it hasn't happened. Some people aren't sure about. Uh, I'm just asking for clarity from my lips and, and clarity and wisdom and insight for the people who would listen not simply with their ears or even with their minds, but with their hearts, that we would be open to hear what you have to say and what this means for us. Lord God, I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we looked at the first section. 21 through 35 is the second section. And the second section is this. The second section of prophecy is the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. It's the time or, or the career of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, some of you may be wondering who that is. Uh, let me just say that we went over this a lot uh, when we looked at his escapades in chapter 8. So I'm not going to go into as much detail as I did then, but let me just, just remind you of just who this wicked, truly wicked, evil person was. As the text says, he was not in line for the throne. 
Now, just to review real briefly, remember that, that last part of the first section, the kings of the north and south? Those of you that were here, you may remember that they, they were two kingdoms that branched off of Alexander the Great's kingdom when he fell. There were four parts, but two of those parts, the Bible follows along and refers to them as the king of the north and south. Y'all remember that? North was the Seleucid dynasty because Seleucus, the general, got that. The southern part was the Ptolemaic dynasty. Uh, they got Egypt because that was the general Ptolemy from Alexander's army. He got that part of Alexander's kingdom. So it's north and south, and there's been this tug of war between them uh, for quite some time with Israel caught right in the middle. We talked about that last week. Antiochus Epiphanes was of the line of the kings of the north. He was of the Seleucid dynasty. He was not in line for the throne. He was uh, a second son of the king. In other words, Antiochus had an older brother, and his name was Seleucus IV. Seleucus IV was in line for the throne and came to the throne after his father died. Seleucus IV was then assassinated. But Antiochus still wasn't in line for the throne because Seleucus IV had a younger had a, had a young son, had actually an infant son. And so in the way, you know, royalty and kings and how all that stuff works, it's the direct heir, the direct line that is the next one to the throne. So when Seleucus IV is bumped off, his infant son is the one in line for the throne. Antiochus, through some, some apparently, what we've been able to ascertain, some backroom political maneuvering, arranges it to get, builds his coalition, and then seizes the throne and announces that he is, he's going to be co-heir, he's going to be co-regent with his nephew until his nephew is old enough to assume his duties as king. Antiochus then promptly has his nephew murdered, and he's king. Who's going to do anything about it? He was ruthless, he was wicked, and he thought a lot of himself. He gave him the title, he gave himself the title uh, Epiphanes, which uh, basically means the manifest one. Uh, it, basically implying that he was a god. He had, he had, he had come, he was, he was manifest. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, eventually Antiochus uh, had coins printed up with his image on it uh, with, the, uh, with the phrase uh, manifest god printed on the on the coin with his phrase on it. As I said back in chapter 8, this is a guy with a serious God complex. And maybe that explains why, maybe that explains why Antiochus Epiphanes had such a hatred for the Jews. Because the Jews believe in how many gods? One, right? There's one God and one God only. And we will worship and we will serve only Him, right? And along comes... And remember, the reason... The reason the prophecy is following Antiochus Epiphanes is because who is the prophecy about, ultimately? It's about Israel, right? It's following Israel. What's going to happen to Israel? So maybe that's why Antiochus hates Israel so much, the Jews so much, because they had this belief that there was only one God, that he was the true God, and Antiochus comes along and he says, I'm God, and as a matter of fact, you can worship me as God, and, and the Jews said, no, we will not worship you as God, and Antiochus brought the hammer down. He, at the very least, we know, he put at least tens of thousands of Jews to death. He cut off the daily sacrifice in the temple. He erected a statue of Zeus and then, altar, and then sacrificed a pig on the altar 
in the very temple of the Jewish people. It's exactly what Daniel's prophecy said would happen. Verse 31, I think it is, talks about that abomination of desolation, exactly what it's referring to. Daniel's prophecy nails Antiochus Epiphanes perfectly. And virtually everyone theologically, secularly agrees that this is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. So once again, here we go. Once again, we see these prophecies coming true exactly as they're predicted. Which means then, now stay with me here for a moment. Well, really stay with me the whole time, but. <laughs> Which means that if, if Daniel has been right about all of these prophecies, Daniel wrote this before any of these events took place, Daniel's been right about all of these. And here's, here's part of at least what this means for us. It means then that any other prophecies that Daniel or, or really any other prophet makes, but any other prophecies Daniel makes that are yet future, and we'll talk about that in a moment, that are yet future, that we can have absolute certainty that they will come true just as much as these came true. You understand what I'm saying? God's batting a thousand, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to prophecies. God has said this is what's going to happen, and it happens exactly as God says through his prophets. And so that means for us, wow, whatever else he has to say in here, that, that's going to be true. Those prophecies are going to be true as well. I, I hope that that's an encouragement to us, and we'll talk more about future prophecies in a moment. But we're learning that. But we are also, hopefully, learning that God's word is accurate, truthful, and reliable. Let me say that again. God's word is accurate, truthful, and reliable. And if it is accurate, if it is truthful, if it is reliable in these areas concerning prophecy, then there's a pretty good chance that it's accurate about other areas and other things that it addresses as well. You see, if you're sitting there, if you happen to be sitting there, and I, I understand this happens, but if you happen to be sitting there and you're thinking, dude... This is a 2,500-year-old prophecy. And besides that, you just told me it already took place a long time ago. It has no relevance for my life. I'm bored, and I'd just as soon you wind this thing up so I can get out of here. I beg to differ. Because at some point in the study of these prophecies, and this has been my prayer throughout this thing, ladies and gentlemen, at some point in the study of these prophecies, it it will begin to to dawn on us that that a light will begin to go off that says, hey... Hey, now wait a minute. If God uh, accurately says stuff about prophecy and all of that comes true, then that other stuff that God talks about, that must be true as well. Ding, 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 ding. Johnny, tell them what they've won. Yes. Yes. So that virtually any subject, any topic, any, anything you want to address, any situation in your life, any area that you want to address, you can go to God's word with absolute confidence that it's true. Why? Because it's been true every other time. All right, let's, let's, let's pick one. I'm not picking on one. Let's pick one. This is as I was working through this text and I was just thinking, you know, what, what's an example from our culture? Let, let, me, let me give you an example from our culture. For, for example, God's word says that you should not have sex with anyone except your spouse unless you're married. Period. Period. There, there are no exceptions. It doesn't matter whether the culture thinks that it's, that it's old, that's an old-fashioned view or that it's old school. 
It doesn't matter if you love each other. God's word says, I know you. I know you perfectly. And I know what is best for you physically. I know what is best for you emotionally. I know what is best for you psychologically. And I know what is best for you spiritually. And I have given you this wonderful gift of sexual expression. And it is precious and it is powerful. And it is to be shared within the confines of which I have limited it. And if you go beyond the borders of that expression, if you go beyond the limits of which I have set for your good, there will be consequences. There is a cost to, to, to abusing something as, as wonderful and beautiful and powerful as the gift of sexual expression is. There's a cost to it. Listen, I'm not, I'm not okay, I'm not, I'm not picking on sex, all right? Some of you heard me say before, I think it's one of God's better inventions. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not down. I'm just, I'm just saying that, you could t- that, that that's just one example where our, where our culture, I took that one because our, that's one area where our culture has so skewed off of what, what God says. So skewed off of that that we could look there. But you could look, you could, you could see what God's word says about, about anger or, or, or about lying or, or about uh, Husbands loving your wives in a sacrificial manner or, or wives loving your husbands uh, by honoring or, and respecting and placing yourself under their leadership or, or uh, living a holy life or uh, trusting God with the money he's trusted. All, all these things, living, all these things that we could look at from God's word. What I'm saying to you is we can trust it because God's gotten it right every other time. And so why wouldn't he be right when he talks about this area or that area or that area? Why wouldn't he be right then? Now, the response normally is for whether, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, the area of, of sexuality or whatever. The response normally is, it's my life. I can live it the way I want, when I want, how I want, and nobody has a right to tell me how to live that life. I understand that's a very popular sentiment in our culture. Would you agree with that? That that's pretty popular in our culture? It's my life. I have the right to do with it what I want. Again... I beg to differ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, maybe perhaps you've read these verses before, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Would you read that last part with me? Therefore, glorify God. Come on, therefore, glorify God in your body. So you and I have to get over the whole idea that it's my life, my decisions, my right to live it any way I want to. No, no, it's not. Not if you've decided you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, He has redeemed you. He's bought you, paid for you so that he might give you his life. We have to get over that idea and understand, hey, I've either got to decide either I'm going to believe what my culture says or I'm going to believe what... God's word says. That's really what it comes down to. Either I'm going to believe and follow and go with what my culture says, or I'm going to believe and follow what God's word says. Now, let me remind you one other thing, one other promise. I'm talking about all these promises that are true, and we can rely on them because these other promises are true. Let me, let me give you one other. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You listening to me? There's not a person in this room that has not blown it. There's not a person in this room that has not blown it with God. There's not a person in this room that has not committed sin. And there's not a person in this room or, or listening 
uh, or whatever the case may be, is not a person that God cannot and will not redeem. That if we will, exactly as the Bible says, if we will confess that sin, which, which just means to admit to God that we've done something that he wouldn't want us to do. That's really what conf- to confess your sin is. It's just telling God, God, I, I, did, I know you, don't, you do not approve of this and this is what I did. If we will confess that sin and if we will repent of that sin, which simply means to walk away from it, to turn around and say, I, I, I'm gonna str- I know this may be a struggle for me, but I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give in to to uh, lust, or I'm not going to give in to anger, I'm not going to give in to greed, whatever it is, whatever it is, I'm going to turn and I'm going to walk away from that. If we will do those things, God's word promises that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to me, whatever it is in your life, don't think that God can't redeem it. So the first section, the time from Daniel uh, uh, until Antiochus Epiphanes. The second section the time or the career of Antiochus Epiphanes himself. And he had a tremendous, what he did to the nation of Israel, that's why he's recorded there, that's why he's pointed out or, or separated, because he did much, much harm and damage to the people uh, of Israel. The third section uh, is this. It's the time of the Antichrist. The third section is the time of the Antichrist. Let me read uh, verse 36 uh, through the end of the chapter real quickly here. Verse 36 of chapter 11. Then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many. And he will parcel out land for a price. At the end of... At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. And then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy land, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Well, that's certainly a lot to take in. Third section is the time of the Antichrist. I said that this section is the most debated section of the, of the text of the prophecy. There are three areas that are debated. Stay with me on this. I know this is a lot to take in. Uh, this is the three areas that are kind of debated and over and people aren't sure about or whatever. Who the prophecy is referring to, when the events described take place, and should the events be taken literally or symbolically? Well, uh, based on the, the line you just filled in a moment ago, you probably have already ascertained who I believe that the text is referring to and therefore when it takes place. But I want to 
I want to try and deal with it. I want to try and help you understand as best you can a little bit of this historical background. So again, you can see the power of God's word uh, as, as it's working. The historical background meaning as Daniel wrote it. Um, and I want to do it. I want to look at it in, in uh, reverse order if I can. So first, should the events be taken literally or symbolically? Let me just say this. Uh, I think they should be taken literal uh, for the simple fact that all of the rest of Daniel chapter 11 is literal. You understand what I'm saying? That, that, just, that just makes sense. The Bible does use symbolism in places. It does speak symbolically. In Revelation, you can read a lot of symbolism. It does at times. But all of the previous two sections have been literal. They were actual events, actual historical events, actual historical literal people. And so based on that, there's really no good reason to suddenly switch and to think that the writer is now speaking symbolically. Does that make sense to you? You understand what I'm saying? There's no reason to switch and say, oh, now he's, now he's speaking symbolically. So I think it should be taking, taken literal. As to uh, when the events transpire, uh, I believe that they should be seen as future. That they are future events yet to come. And I say I, uh, I you know, I'm reading what other guys are trying to see if they're coming to the same conclusions I am. Not everyone agrees on, on some of these things. Please understand, I'm not... Uh, not trying to say that they do, but, but among majority of, of conservative evangelical uh, students of the book of Daniel, uh, these events are seen as future. And again, it's, I have a very simple reason for coming to that conclusion. Because this is important, right? This, is, this matters to us now. If you thought all that other stuff didn't matter because that already happened a long time ago, if I'm right and this is future, it, in other words, it hasn't happened to us yet. You understand what I say when I say future? I mean, it hasn't happened for us yet. For Daniel, it was all future, right? Y'all have learned that. Everything that Daniel wrote about had not happened yet when Daniel wrote it. But I, what I'm saying is this last section of Daniel chapter 11 is future for us. It actually hasn't happened yet. I believe that for the simple reason that there's no consensus agreement on any event or person in that last part of Daniel 11 that, that we can confirm, oh, that's who Daniel was writing about. Oh, that's who Daniel was talking about. We could do that easily in the first two sections, right? Everybody agrees. Theologians, historians, everybody agrees. Verse 2 is talking about the, the, the kings of the Persian Empire after Cyrus. Verse 3 and 4, talking about the kings of the, the Greek Empire. Uh, verse 5 through 20 is talking about the kings of the north, uh, the Seleucid dynasty, and the kings of the south, the Ptolemy dynasty. Uh, uh, 21 through 35 is talking about one of the kings of the north, Antiochus. But everybody agrees about that. You can, you can look right at it and, say, and we see, yep, that's, he did that, and that's exactly right, and all that kind of stuff. We can't do that with verses 36 through 45. You can try and force a few things in. I don't have time to go into some of what those are today. You can try and force, but, but there's, I can say this, there's no consensus that this is any historical per, these are any historical persons mentioned or any historical fact. That would lend itself then to the idea that it must still be future. Does that make sense to you? If we can't look at a place in history and say, yep, that's when that happened, then that would, that would tend to lend uh, towards the idea that it is future and has not yet occurred. Okay, uh, real quickly, um, as to the idea of, of who it is that, that we're talking about here, uh, I've already tipped my hand with that, but it should be seen as the Antichrist. Um, I, I would give you some of the other people that, that people say that they are, but I'd, I'd love to talk to you about it if you have further questions. But let me just say that as best I can tell, the overwhelming amount of evidence points to the fact that this is a person yet to come who will come on the scene in the last days, that he is this last king. He will come to power through some type of political coalition, some type of, 
of, uh, and we get this from Daniel chapter 7. Remember I told you they're all connected? From Daniel 7, remember Daniel 7? He is the little horn that comes up among the ten horns. The ten horns represent this, this European coalition that will come up in the last days. And the Antichrist, this per- remember he's a person, he's a, he's a real man. He will rise up and come to power through that ten-nation federation. He'll be a politician, most likely, and he will, he will gain the favor of the people, I believe, by, by bringing about a resolution to the whole Middle East crisis. He'll bring a peace. We know he signs a peace treaty with Israel. We saw that in chapter 9. I believe he brings peace to the region, and basically the world, or at least a, a major section of the world, will say, hey, let's make this guy head poobah. He seems to know what he's doing. Uh, let, let's, let's make him... Uh, the man. And so that's what they uh, will do. Notice in verse 40, the kings of the north and the south are still being mentioned. They're still involved. But notice this time, they seem to be fighting with each other. They're joining forces against this antichrist who, who has come to power. Either they get tired of his rule and they rebel against him, or they never really join, get on board in the first place. But they rebel against him, as Israel did, three and a half, will do, three and a half years into the peace treaty. Remember that? From Daniel chapter 9. All of this is moving towards, let me get, let me get, all this is moving towards culmination. You read verses 40 through 45, moving towards this one final giant battle. You can read about it in the book of Zechariah. You can read about it in uh, Zechariah chapter 14. You can read about it in, in Joel chapter 3. You can read about it in Revelation chapter uh, 16, verses 12 through 16. All talk about this final battle that we know as the battle of Armageddon. This last battle where the forces of the Antichrist, most likely forces from the West, those Western Europe, the Americas, whoever all he gets, that coalition moves towards the, 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 what's known as the, the Valley of Megiddo. Some people call it the Valley of Jezreel. It's a real place, by the way. Um, and you may not be aware of this, but, but the historians are agreed that more battles have been fought on this particular piece of earth than any other place on earth. Uh, it, is in, it is in northern Israel, I think in the southern part of the Galilee region. There's a hill there, a mountain, they call the Mount of Megiddo. And laying out before it is this giant valley. And the Word of God says in Daniel and in those other passages that, that, the, that the armies of the Antichrist, the armies of the West, will come and they, they will clash with the armies of the East. Um, possibly uh, China uh, or Asia in general. And uh, for armies from the North. Most likely, uh, I'm filling in a lot of gaps, I'm speaking fast here. Most likely... Uh, some type of coalition between Syria, the original king of the north, you remember them? Syria and Russia, uh, which lies just north of Syria. Isn't it interesting that, uh, that uh, Russia is standing right beside Syria right now in the latest uh, crisis in the Middle East? And, and, and Russia is standing up and saying, if you do anything to Syria, we're going we're gonna to retaliate. Isn't it interesting that they're building this coalition? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And, and so uh, they will come together in this last, final, cataclysmic battle. I know I'm saying a lot here, filling in a lot, this battle of Armageddon. At which point, we, we piece all the verses together, at which point, at the end of which, this is the good part, and we'll celebrate some next week, the end of which the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, the Bible says, will return physically, bodily, to this earth, put an end to the battle of Armageddon, and establish his kingdom his thousand-year reign, that that was referred to oftentimes as a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Uh, my 
hypothesis is that it's, it's God showing us how it could have been had we followed him in the first place. So, here we go. Wind it up. I know I said a lot there. Fill in a lot of I'll answer questions if you guys have them uh, later after we go. But the bit, here's the $64,000 question. Well, when? When is this going to happen? If it is future, if you're right, dude, when you say that this has not yet happened, those other first two sections, they've happened. We can see them. We can document them. They're accurate. We know this third section, if you're saying that's yet future, and all this is going to happen, one final battle in the last seven years, this tribulation period that you've been talking about, all this kind of stuff, when is that going to happen? Well, this I can say with absolute certainty. It will begin the day Israel signs a peace treaty with the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. We looked at that last week or week before last. It will begin that, that period, and that will be the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. That There will be seven years left at that point in this tribulation period before the return of Christ. Okay? I can tell you with absolute certainty that, that, that it will happen the day that, he be, that that peace treaty is signed. What I can't tell you with certainty is when that will be. Is it going to be, is it going to be uh, five months from now? Is it five years from now? Is it, is it a year from now? A hundred years from now? A thousand years from now? When is it going to be? I can't tell you. But I will say this. There are indicators, and Scripture allows us to do this. There are indicators that we can begin to look at that certainly could imply that we may be moving rapidly towards that time on this earth, ladies and gentlemen. Now, some people, you, you might could point to the latest crisis in the Middle East that is really unprecedented, what's really been going on the last two years. But uh, you could point at that and say, wow, could that be a, a precursor to all these events that are going to transpire? It could be. But I'll say this, and I'm going to close. Probably the greatest indicator that I believe that we have currently, that we may be in the latter days before the return of Christ, what I believe is probably the greatest indicator that we have is the existence of the nation of Israel. Now, if you say, well, and, and, and some of you are too young, and you may not, and, and if you slept through history, you may not remember this, you may be thinking, I, well, what do you mean, the, the existence of the nation of Israel? Some of you may not be aware that after the Roman general Titus destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, we talked about that a while back, after Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, Israel, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. It went out of existence for 2,000 years. It didn't exist. There was no country of Israel. There was no nation of Israel. That is unprecedented. No nation, as best I can, can, can find, no nation has ever ceased to exist for more than two or three, maybe four generations and come back into existence. Israel ceased to exist for 2,000 years. And suddenly in 1948, came back into existence, became a nation again. The book of Daniel, various other prophetic books talk significantly about the nation of Israel in the last days. Well, if Israel didn't exist, we couldn't be in the last days. Guess what? Israel exists. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, but that was like 60-something years ago. Ladies and gentlemen, on the prophetic timeline, that's not even a blink of an eye. The point is, the nation of Israel exists. It is back in the land. It is a country constituted, existing, just as prophecy says that it would be. Are we in the last days? In a sense, yes. But is it going to be in five months? Or five? I don't know. But this is what I know. You and I are called to live ready. That's the point. To live ready. Get ready, yeah. Be ready, yes. Live ready. 
Lance Armstrong Foundation made a lot of money off Live Strong bracelets. Maybe we should come up with a bracelet that just says, Live Ready. Because that's what it is, ladies and gentlemen. Every day, you and I need to live with the expectation that God is winding this whole thing up and that, and that people will spend eternity somewhere. And we need, to, we need to give a rip about that. Well, that's certainly a lot to take in, isn't it? As Pastor Clay pointed out in today's message, the accuracy of the other prophecies that have already been fulfilled should give us absolute certainty that the prophecies that are still in the future will be fulfilled just as God's Word predicts they will. As Pastor said, that should give us amazing confidence in God's Word, not only the prophecies that are still to be fulfilled, but all of God's Word and its application for our lives. One thing is for sure, the end is coming. Are you ready? Do you know Christ is your Savior? Are you walking confidently in the promises of His Word? We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.